HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Hearst Ranch, grass-fed beef raised on California's central coast. Now available online through Larder Meat Company. Learn more at hearstranch.com. Good evening and welcome to Eating Matters, where we talk about food systems and policy and how they impact all of us. I'm your host, Jenna Liute, and we're broadcasting on Heritage Radio Network. Today, I'm so excited to welcome author Carrie Gillum back to the show. I had the pleasure of interviewing Carrie in 2019 about her award-winning book, Whitewash, which is an astounding expose on Monsanto and the health risks of its best-selling herbicide, Roundup. In this episode, we will be discussing Carrie's new book, The Monsanto Papers, Deadly Secrets, Corporate Corruption, and One Man's Search for Justice, which offers a rare inside look at a landmark lawsuit against Monsanto, pulling back the curtain on the grueling legal battle, the frailties of the American court system, and the extent to which the company was willing to go to hide the dangers and dire consequences of its products. Carrie, thank you so much for being here today. Um, so first of all, I want to congratulate you on finishing um, this new book. Um, and I want to just see if you can provide some more background on how you started reporting on Monsanto in the first place and what you covered in your previous book. Sure. So I you know, was assigned by Reuters. Um, International News Agency was where I spent a good deal of my career, 17 years. And I was assigned in 1998 to start covering this very big company, very big and interesting company called Monsanto, um, because they had introduced genetically engineered crops uh, in the 1990s. And it was revolutionizing agriculture and the way, you know, farmers, what they grew, how they grew it, the chemicals that they used, and competitors were jumping in. And it was a very big change for agriculture overall. So that was my job to learn and write about those companies and the business. And, you know, it just sort of all evolved into my first book, which was called Whitewash, which came out in 2017. And that was really the culmination of 20 years of research uh, into the health impacts and the environmental impacts of this weed killer sold by Monsanto. Uh, most people know it as Roundup. Uh, the active ingredient is glyphosate, a chemical called glyphosate. So, you know, the first book was really sort of an academic, I guess my, I might say, book filled with a lot of science. Um, this book 
is an extension of that, but this is a personal story of one man uh, who was exposed um, through a couple of accidents to very large quantities of this weed killer Roundup and developed a really awful terminal cancer and his struggle with that and what he learned about what Monsanto had hidden about Roundup and glyphosate and, and how he and a group of really sort of interesting eclectic lawyers got together and took Monsanto to court. Uh, first time in the world to bring Monsanto to trial over allegations that it's Roundup weed killer causes cancer. Okay. And so let's, can you, can you provide some background on Monsanto? I think probably most of my listeners are very familiar with their work, but if um, for any new listeners we have, um, how big is the company in terms of revenue and what, you know, what is the range of products that they make and where are they now? Well, Monsanto actually is uh, no more. There is no more Monsanto um, uh, existing as a separate standalone company. It was bought by the German uh, conglomerate Bayer uh, AG. Most people know Bayer by Bayer Aspirin, you know, the big pharmaceutical Mm -hmm. company. Uh, And they were bought by Bayer in 2018. And the Monsanto name has effectively been retired. But before they were bought by Bayer, you know, they'd been around since the early 1900s and uh, been involved uh, over the years in an array of sort of industrial chemicals. Um, they were involved in DDT. They were involved in uh, the production of Agent Orange. Uh, they were involved in uh, PCBs and, and had a lot of sort of environmental woes attached to many of their products. And mm-hmm. in 1974 is when they in- introduced glyphosate and Roundup and their weed killing products became incredibly popular and became the most widely sell, uh, widely used weed killers in the world. And then of course they were known uh, more recently for their genetically engineered crop technology. That could specifically withstand, you know, developed specifically to withstand the spraying of their glyphosate. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. Roundup ready, roundup ready crops. <laughs> all, all really good things they've been associated with. Solid, healthy products over, <laughs> over the years. Wow. Okay. Um, and it's you know big business, right? Sold for an enormous amount of money uh, to Bayer over asking price. How big? You know, how much revenue do they generate, and how important is the glyphosate product line um, to their business? Well, so Monsanto, you know, ranged, you know, it changed year to year, but ranged 13, 14, 15 billion in revenue every every year. Bayer paid about $63 billion to buy Monsanto in 2018, uh, which turned out not to be such a good deal for them. It's uh, been deemed by various news outlets as the worst uh, corporate acquisition, you know, in history. Has it, has it really? I didn't know that. I mean, I'm not surprised, but we'll get into why, but I did not know that. Um, okay. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So we'll talk about that in a minute. But. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But no, um, in terms of the, the revenue breakdown, so glyphosate and their weed killing products, the company didn't break out specific profit and revenue, but they did break it out for the unit that contained their agrochemicals, uh, and their inputs. And that was about, oh, three, four, five billion dollars, say out of their $15 billion. And the crop technology, the seeds, uh, really became sort of the the mainstay for Monsanto and for its profits and revenues. 
but you have to take into account what we said earlier, which is that a lot of the crop technology was tied very directly to glyphosate. So if you don't have glyphosate on the market, if you don't have Roundup, Roundup ready seeds are useless. So the seeds and the chemicals were very much connected um, for Monsanto's uh, you know, wealth and well-being. Mm-hmm. And what is the difference really between glyphosate, Roundup, and Ranger Pro, which is a product kind of featured in in this litigation? Um, how and why are they used and by typically by whom? Yeah, so, I mean, they're all very similar. They're all sort of the same. Glyphosate is the active ingredient. Mm-hmm. It's the weed-killing chemical that makes it work. Um, Ranger Pro is a more, you know, concentrated, toxic um sort of chemical that can be used by, you know, landscapers and, and uh, groundskeepers, such as the, the gentleman I write about in my book, Lee Johnson, he was using Ranger Pro. Um, but they all in effect are based around this chemical glyphosate. But they're, so they're um, different versions of a similar product that, that represent, that have a lot of different ingredients in it. Oh, I think well, yes. I mean, I looked through, uh, Gosh, a list of the brand names not too long ago. I mean, there are so many. I mean, there's just more, far more than I thought. I mean, worldwide, there are over 700 products uh, containing glyphosate uh, that are weed-killing products that are sold. Uh, they contain different things, different surfactants, different percentages, you know, of dilute, dilution uh, materials, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. But you know, it's it's aimed at they're aimed at different markets, different geographies. Uh, most you know, residential users probably are just familiar with that bottle of Roundup that they pick up at Home Depot or or a Lowe's or a Walmart and, you know, walk around in their garden and spray weeds. Um, Yeah, that's terrifying, I think. I think that this was a, this was a kind of comes up in the research, though, the difference between just the active ingredient and the active ingredient when combined with other um, other ingredients, you know, in, in certain products. Yes. Um, I mean, the formulations very definitely have been found by scientific research, scientific researchers to be more toxic, more dangerous, um, to human health. If you, if you're going to look at it that way, um, for a long time, Monsanto was using a particular surfactant that we refer to as POEA that, uh, was found to be so dangerous that it was banned in Europe. Uh, so, you know, that was one thing that, that was considered inert, that wasn't, was considered something that didn't need a lot of attention and was being mixed in with glyphosate and, uh, you know, for a very long time. Okay. So this book is the inside story of Lee Johnson's landmark lawsuit against Monsanto. Who is Lee Johnson and what is his story? So Lee Johnson is just a regular guy, you know, he's a, he's a guy that had a really hard time growing up, um, kind of, you know, got into some trouble with the law, had a hard time in school, you know, became a father very, very young, didn't have his own father around as he grew up. Uh, his mother was absent a lot of the time as well. He just, he really struggled, but then seemed to find himself um, as he moved into middle age, his father of two two boys, two young boys then, and got married, and found a great job working as a school, um, you know, groundskeeper, basically taking care of of all of the schoolyards uh, for this large school district in Benicia, California. I loved the work, and uh, was getting you know a lot of praise uh, from supervisors and making a decent income, and really just felt really good about his life. 
Then he had this accident uh, where he was doused with Monsanto's Ranger Pro, uh, you know, just soaked to the skin. And then when a tank uh, on the back of the truck that was filled with this chemical, the hose came off and it sprayed this giant fountain and he was in there trying to, you know, clog it up and shut it down. And anyway, he comes to find out, you know, not, not too long later, about a year later, his skin starts erupting in these strange lesions. And over time, you know, he's told it's skin cancer and then it's a more deadly kind of cancer and then it transforms and he's told he has 18 months left to live. Mm-hmm. Yeah, his um, his health battles were pretty harrowing to read about. It's not just you know skin cancer. It is uh, it, just like you know your description of the sores and like the excruciating pain he was in. I had no idea um, that that was a, a symptom. Um, it was so so brutal, and I I still don't even know if I really conveyed, you know, the level of suffering that he has been through. But um, to see the wounds, the lesions, the scars, the scabs, the blood, the skin, you know, that's just a part of his every daily life as his entire body is covered with these cancerous lesions. Uh, And it's so painful for him to move, to wear clothes, you know, to put socks on, to, it's it's just a brutal uh, cancer that, you know, has come for him. And that's non-Hodgkin's lymphoma with a, it's a specific kind of that cancer though, right? It's a specific kind of non-Hodgkin lymphoma. uh, Yes. That manifests on the, on the skin and the tissues of the skin. Um, And it came about, so he had this like kind of harrowing accident where he was just like, even he was wearing like PPE at the time, but he was just so soaked accidentally that it just got all over him. Right. Yeah, he had um, a lot of protective gear on, but when he, as the way he describes it, when he dove into the back of this pickup truck and there's this fountain of weed killer, you know, spraying up into the air and he's trying desperately to shut off the, the you know, valve to shut it down, uh, you know, it just got all in the suit and down his neck and soaked his his clothes underneath. And, and the thing was, he had always been told that it was so safe. Mm-hmm. And that you really shouldn't need to worry about it too much if you did get some on your skin. So he didn't rush right back to work. He stayed and cleaned up the mess. He didn't rush home uh, to shower. He just went on about, you know, his business to do his job uh, and didn't shower until that evening when he got home. Um, and let worth reiterating that this was at a school. <laughs> he was spraying the school grounds. And this was like a fountain of chemicals just kind of being release that he was trying to clean up really quickly. Yeah, he was trying. It was running at the, this area right um, by the school. There's a large body of water right across from it. And there's a, you know, it runs down into that. And he was trying to keep it from getting into the waterway because he knew that would be bad <laughs> in a lot of ways. Yeah. Um, so how did this case unfold? You know, who became part of the legal team? How did they come to work together? And was this just Lee's lawsuit or, um, you know, was this a representation of many, many, many lawsuits being filed? Right. So what, what triggered all this litigation, uh, was the international agency for research on cancer in 2015, examining the literature on this chemical glyphosate and looking at Roundup and looking at glyphosate and all these studies that have been done by independent researchers for many years 
and they determined it was a probable human carcinogen with a particular association to non-Hodgkin lymphoma. Well, when they did that in March of 2015, plaintiff's lawyers in the United States immediately recognized this as you know, ripe for litigation because it was so widely used, because it was such a popular product, because non-Hodgkin lymphoma you know, affects so many people and can be so deadly. So they started advertising. Lee was one of tens of thousands or now more than 100,000 people who have brought claims wow. against wow. Monsanto, um, alleging their non-Hodgkin lymphomas associated to their exposures, right, to Roundup. Mm-hmm. So he was only one of many, um, and there were many lawyers working on this, but his case rose through the ranks to become the first simply because he was expected to die so quickly. And how was, so is that how he was chosen, Um, you know, out of, out of all of the possible plaintiffs, his case was like the most terminal and the most imminent? It was a combination of the fact that his, he was expected to die so quickly. And the fact that he had signed up with one of the, the leading law firms, the law firm that had been on this litigation since the beginning and had already gone through quite a bit of discovery and put a lot of their case together. They just weren't sure who would be the first plaintiff among their thousands of clients. And so when Lee's lawyer realized uh, that he was expected to die within, you know, 18 months or so, they knew they had to get him to trial quickly. And they asked the judge for what was called a preference trial. Mm -hmm. And Monsanto opposed that, did not want uh, him to have the ability to go to trial quickly. But the judge essentially overruled them, and uh, the trial began in June of 2018. Um, what makes this case similar or different to other? Um, I mean, it w- was this considered a mass tort litigation case? Yes, this is mass tort. This is uh, when you have large numbers of people uh, who allege injury, you know, associated with one company and, and one product. Uh, it's different from a class action. Uh, these people. Their injuries are different. Their circumstances are different. You know, their exposures would have been different. Mm. Um, so it's it's mass tort. They're they're all handled individually, but they can be combined for things like discovery and you know, sort of some early decisions by judges. And that was that happened in this case early on as well, right? Yeah, yeah. There were a lot of twists and turns, and a, and a lot of just really interesting things that I learned about you know how strategic. Uh, you you get when you're putting these cases together, and um, but uh, yeah, this is how this was how they did it. I, I watched how the sausage was made, so to speak, uh, bringing big cases uh, to trial and trying to hold big companies to account. It was really fascinating to watch it. Well, I was very captured by the entire process as well, and read every last page of this book. It really laid out the complexities of the case and the court system in a compelling and easy to understand way. Um, And one of the things that struck me um, when I was reading this is that the judge wasn't originally as friendly to the plaintiff's case, in my opinion. Like the burden of proof was very much on the prosecution to demonstrate how egregious Monsanto's actions were. Yeah, I mean, definitely. The, you see it evolve. Um, You see the judge's attitude evolve. Um, It was a very high hill to climb. And 
you watch how they put it together and some of the self-doubt that they go through. I mean, I really tried to tell this book differently than Whitewash. I tried to tell it through the eyes of this small group of attorneys and through Lee and his wife. And so that you're, you're there with them, you know, in, <laughs> in, in the hotel in Chicago when they're, you know, talking about, you know, could we actually win this or not? And uh, they're strategizing, and you know, one of their witnesses at the very last minute, they're afraid to put her on the stand because they're afraid she's going to say the wrong thing and they don't know what to do. Like all of that drama, I really wanted to bring mm-hmm. into the, the story so that it would be something that would carry readers, you know, all the way to the end. Um, and I, you know, I wanted before we were kind of wrap up the conversation on, on mass tort, like what other other examples of how litigation of this kind has changed, um, you know, the way in which we regulate certain products. Can you give us a few examples of how it's been used to kind of protect health and safety um, through this work and whether or not this is like the most effective way to do so? Well, you know, if you look at opioid litigation, for instance, um, you know, or the Takata airbag litigation or gosh, you know, tobacco litigation, (laughs) right? We can go on and on and on. Right. Or, Or the PFAS litigation, DuPont poisoning the water, you know, in West Virginia, you, you have time and time again, so many examples, giant companies, very powerful dangerous product, dangerous medical device, um, defective product, uh, regulators and lawmakers for whatever reason, just can't seem to, you know, get the ball rolling or do anything about it. Mm-hmm. And, and I try to make this clear in my book. I don't advocate necessarily that it's a perfect system, this mass tort, this plaintiff's bar. Um, but it's all we've got right now. Right. Yeah. Our regulators are not protecting people. Um, and these law firms are the only ones out there hauling these companies into court, putting forth the evidence, putting forth the science and saying, you've you know, been lying to us or you've been negligent or you have not, you know, followed the law. And, um, you know, it's unfortunate that we yeah. have to rely on these on these law firms to do what should be done by our regulators. So at the end of the day, what was this lawsuit really about? In the in the trial section of the book, you kind of outline, you know, in let's say that in like the opening arguments, the two sides kind of conclude and tell the jury that the the, the case is really about differing um, questions. What are those questions that each side sought to uh, to answer through the trial? Well, I think the, the easiest way to think about it is sort of there, there were two elements to this. I mean, there were many more, but it can go into two buckets. So you have um, the science, you know, what does the science say about these chemicals? Uh, Roundup glyphosate, you know, in these products called the chemical. What does the science say um, about its association to cancer and specifically non-Hodgkin lymphoma? And then, of course, as part of that, what is the likelihood or, you know, the basis for understanding that Lee Johnson himself, you know, that this particular chemical caused his particular cancer. That is all sort of in one bucket. It's the science, it's the medicine, it's the research, it's the hard evidence related to that chemical. Then you get into the the separate bucket, which is conduct, which is the company conduct. And there was a whole realm of evidence to show that Monsanto engaged in what the lawyers alleged was, you know, misconduct, that they 
tried to manipulate the scientific research about this chemical, that they hired uh, third parties to try to smear the reputations of independent scientists who were warning about this chemical, that they uh, you know, engaged in ghost writing um, to try to make it look as though independent scientists were saying that its product was safe when in fact those papers were written by Monsanto scientists, mm-hmm. that they colluded with um, individuals inside the Environmental Protection Agency to quash uh, reviews of the toxicity of glyphosate. You know, it, it went on and on and on in terms of what they alleged was misconduct and the jurors agreed with them, which is why they found in Lee's case uh, that they said he, he was due 250 million in punitive damages alone mm-hmm. because Monsanto's conduct was so egregious. I also thought it was really clever how Brent Wisner, the man who ended up through a series of unbelievable events, becoming um, Johnson's lead counsel, how he framed the question in his opening argument. He said that this case is about choice. It's about the right for every person to make a personal decision for themselves about what chemicals they want to ex- you know, expose themselves and their children to. Some people, of course, are willing to take greater risks, but the potential dangers like a clear association between a product and a very specific form of cancer need to be made obvious so that consumers can make their own decisions. It's about how, you know, he was clear that they're not trying to ban glyphosate, that products like tobacco, which are very harmful to your health, are still in the market. That's not what they were seeking to do. They were seeking to talk about how at the very least, these products should have come with a warning label <laughs> or like, you know, more a, a clearer warning um, of their potential toxicity. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, that was his point. And that's what a lot of the lawyers involved in this have all said, that they're not they're not advocating a ban. They don't want the product off the market. That's not what it's about. It's just simply about being honest and giving consumers you know, factual information about the risks that they face uh, when they use a particular product. And, you know, they had some internal documents uh, from Monsanto where you see the company telling its own employees to, you know, take care and be sure you wear protective gear and long sleeves and, you know, pants and gloves, et cetera, et cetera. But then at the same time, advertising its products to consumers with commercials showing people, you know, in flip-flops and shorts and short sleeves, spraying this, you know, with no protective gear on at all. So, um, you know, and all of this notion about how safe it is. And there are documents, you know, from the EPA dating back to, you know, the 1970s and 80s, where you see EPA officials, um, scientists trying to tell the company, hey, we think that you should put a warning label on your product and, and it should say danger and it should say certain things. And Monsanto is absolutely refusing uh, to do it because, their chief selling point for this product for 40 some years now has been how safe it is. And they do not want anything on there to detract from that. So there's no warning label on the, there on the products. I mean, with Ranger pro, I thought that they had to, you know, groundskeepers had to use PPE to use. Oh, it. sure. No, there's yeah. all sorts of warning labels. It doesn't warn of cancer, you know, it oh, warns God. of, God. you know, eye irritation, you know, if you get it in oh. your eyes, you could, you know, that sort of thing. Oh God, I can't even imagine what happens if you get it in your eyes. Okay. So what key pieces, you mentioned the EPA, what key pieces of research um, that did each side 
look at. You talked about the International Agency for Research on Cancer. Let's actually start there. So they they deemed in 2015 that glyphosate, just glyphosate, not even glyphosate plus other chemicals, um, was a possible carcinogen. What does this really mean? And what other products are in this category? Like, why was this such a big deal? So they deemed it a probable human carcinogen. Um, Yeah, not a possible. I mean, that was another category, a little bit, you know, lower of a risk that they they could have, but they deemed it a probable human carcinogen. Um, And that was based on, as we said, you know, a lot of different epidemiology studies. Now the epidemiology, of course, is not with glyphosate, epidemiology is real, real world use, you know, looking at farmers and, and others who are using the product and in, in their, you know, normal activities. So that is not glyphosate by itself. Those are formulated products. Um, but then the laboratory studies on animals, they looked at those toxicology studies on rats and mice. There were, um, studies looking at DNA changes in people who lived uh, in areas where there was aerial spraying of glyphosate products and, you know, people who were not in that area and then people who were sprayed and sort of, they could see DNA changes. Um, And then there were um, like in vitro and vivo studies, which are, you know, like in a laboratory in a test tube sort of a thing or a Petri dish. So they looked at all of those different studies and that's how they came to this conclusion that it was a probable human carcinogen. They didn't go as far as saying, you know, locked in, we know right. for sure. And it's interesting to know that IARC, I mean, I have to look again at the most latest numbers, but they, they typically don't find things to be carcinogenic or probably carcinogenic. They mostly find things that they either say, we can't, cl- we, we don't know, you know, <laughs> we can't classify it as that, or, you know, possibly not likely, you know, this sort of thing. But for them to say it's probably a human carcinogen was a pretty big deal. And to clarify, this organization doesn't conduct its own new studies. They review the existing literature on the subject from a wide range of sources. Right. They do not do their own research. They look at their own like studies, you know, they don't they don't start new studies. No, they do. Okay. They do reviews of published peer-reviewed literature. Uh, they will sometimes look at things that are not published or peer-reviewed if they can have the actual data. You know, if the companies, the companies usually their research that they give to regulators is not usually published and peer-reviewed. Um, it's hmm. usually considered confidential and trade secret and that sort of thing. So. Uh, that's a big difference between what regulators look at, which is primarily company data, and what the international agency looks at, which is primarily independent data. So the EPA looks at what the company gives them? Primarily what the company gives them. I mean, I just don't understand. Which just it seems like a really bad idea. But if you think about it, I mean, there's a really good explanation for that, I suppose. I mean, when a company is trying to register a product and they want to sell it, you know, in the U S you know, who else is going to be doing all the studies that are required to get that approval from the EPA other than the company wanting to sell it, you know? Right. So they invest millions of dollars in doing research to show to the EPA, Hey, this meets, you know, these requirements. Um, So it makes sense from that standpoint, but 
But then you look at it and you say, oh my gosh, they're relying on, because if you do the analysis and people have done this, invariably, you know, the company studies pretty much always go, oh yeah, my product is really, really safe. Yeah, of course. But when independent researchers look at it, it's not really that, that, you know, clear. <laughs> it's, it's usually the opposite, um, at least with respect to Monsanto and glyphosate. So, And in fact, that was... Um... You know, there was the, a big point of the case was that Monsanto went to extraordinary lengths to um, be very influential in the studies that they put forward and, of course, put, put before the EPA, but just kind of tried to manipulate the science both maybe internally and also um, when working with external kind of scientists. Because they tried to, I mean, they, 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 allegedly had independent third-party reviewers, right, of their of their science? Yeah, so what they, you know, one of the emails that, you know, was such a big deal that came out was um, this email that had been written by uh, Bill Hyden's uh, longtime Monsanto scientist where he's talking about ghostwriting and he's, you know, sort of explaining it in the email, you know, that, <laughs> where, um, you know, we, we pay outside authors, um, you know, to sign their names, but we do the editing, uh, you know, we do the work and they sign their names and we pay them money and, you know, that's ghostwriting. And he sort of lays all this out in an email because they're planning to do it again. Uh, mm -hmm. This is after this international agency um, for research on cancer classification. They wanted to ghostwrite a series of papers to be published to say that these international cancer scientists were dead wrong. Uh, and so he, in this email, is referencing back to another sort of really big paper that they had ghostwritten, uh, that they had given to the EPA. Okay. So that seems unethical. And it's interesting. I mean, you see it in the book um, in when he's being deposed by one of these lawyers and the lawyer is quizzing him about this email, you know, and about ghostwriting and uh, really just putting the screws to him about, you know, well, you said this, how are you going to, how are you going to dance around that? And, mm -hmm. and you see him dance and it's really interesting. Okay. We're going to take a break to hear a word from our sponsors, but we will be right back. So stay tuned. This episode is brought to you by Hearst Ranch. The Hearst family has raised cattle on California's central coast since 1865. Today, Hearst Ranch's signature product is their 100% grass-fed, completely hormone and antibiotic-free beef. The Hearst Ranches have always treated their animals with great care. Their cattle live a completely natural existence as foragers and grazers. Well-managed grazing fertilizes the land naturally sustains a seasonal rhythm to the ranches, and produces a remarkable meat whose flavor is the authentic taste of the American West. Hearst Ranch beef is available seasonally, May through August, in select whole food markets throughout California, and all year round at their retail locations in San Simeon and Paso Robles. And now, HRN listeners in Arizona, Nevada, and California can get Hearst Ranch beef delivered right to their door through Larder Meat Company. Go to lardermeatco.com and shop the 100% grass-fed box to stock your freezer with Hearst Ranch beef. That's L-A-R-D-E-R meatco.com. 
Learn more about the storied history, farming practices, and conservation efforts of Hearst Ranch at hearstranch.com. And we're back on Eating Matters, where today I'm speaking with author Carrie Gillum about her new book, The Monsanto Papers, published by Island Press and available now. Did anything ever come with these people, these internal um, Monsanto employees, Did any was were any of them kind of held personally accountable for their role in kind of covering up or manipulating the science over the past 40 years? No, I mean, you know, the executives at Monsanto walked away with millions of dollars in their pockets and handed the company off to, to Bayer, as I said, right when Lee Johnson's trial started. And, uh, you know, they made out quite well. Now, Bayer, when the verdict came down in the Lee Johnson trial, after six weeks of evidence and people from around the world had been watching, uh, the Bayer saw its stock price plummet. Uh, the investors were furious. The investors have sued Bear Management now. They've tried to throw out the get the head of Bear thrown out of his position. Uh, you know, it's just really roiled the company um, substantially. This this ill advised Monsanto purchase. Yeah. I, so I had I kind of expressed some surprise at the beginning. Um, of the episode that this was such a bad deal for Bear because I, at the time, I was actually working for um, two former investment bankers um, who they're kind of who specialized in M um, and A, and their take was like, no, they absolutely Bear would have absolutely assessed the risk of this. I mean, this is a lawsuit that was pending, and they could just spin out the company and kind of like write it out, write, like write it off, basically. Like there were definite corporate, you know, ways of managing a situation like this. And of course, I'm sure it was not the first time Monsanto or even Bayer had been sued in this type of legislative like, uh, litigation. So I'm, I'm kind of surprised that it turned out to be such a bad deal for Bayer. Well, they were very surprised too. Um, you know, they talked about as it all sort of started falling apart and they saw their market cap, you know, just, just crushed. Yeah. Um, they, you know, they had to, you know, there's a lot of explaining to do and they talked about that. Well, they had expected, you know, there was to be some liability associated with this litigation and they had, you know, thought they might have to pay out some millions of dollars. Um, but they had not anticipated the level um, of loss and liability that, you know, was just coming at them like a freight train with this wow. Monsanto mass tort litigation. And, you know, the Lee Johnson trial was, was one thing. It was the first, they appealed, they said they'd win the appeal. They didn't, they appealed again. They didn't win again. Uh, we had, there were two more trials, each trial they lost the last trial, the third of three that's been held, uh, the, the jurors awarded $2 billion in punitive damages um, because the wow. science and the company conduct was just so outrageous to them. So yeah, Bear decided no more trials <laughs> and yeah. uh, they have been working on a settlement and they are still sort of trying to m muddle their way through the settlement. But basically it's looking like $11 billion paid out for this first wave um, of the mass tort cases that are filed and they've proposed another 2 billion uh, to try to head off some future cases. And this is only in the U S there are cases in Australia. There's a class action filed in Australia as well. So, you know, this is, 
this is a much bigger problem than they anticipated. Wow. That's, I'm just, I'm just so surprised at like the, the hubris, I guess. Um, if that, if you can call it that, that they just did not expect this to be that big of a deal at the end of the day. Um, what was the most egregious finding unearthed in this process in your opinion? Oh my, you know, I have to figure out an answer to that because I'm always asked it and I, I don't think it's any one thing. I mean, I don't know. I think it's, it's cumulative, right? Mm -hmm. It's, it's that they didn't just talk about ghostwriting one paper. You know, the evidence shows multiple incidents of, of this and how cavalierly they talk about it and, and just expect it that, you know, it's fine. And this is what we'll do. And um, the evidence that came out showing them, you know, with a fusion center um, set up to manipulate sort of public opinion, you know, and, and uh, to discredit people and make it look like it, it didn't come from them, like it came from some third parties and to get, you know, articles uh, written by a PR firm that they paid, but make it look like they came from, you know, scientists or, uh, you know, legitimate individual, independent individuals and have those letters and articles, you know, printed in magazines and newspapers around the country. I mean, it just went on and on and on. Manipulate uh, websites, you know, have things put put on WebMD, um, you know, engineer search engine optimization for Google for if you're searching for something, you make sure you get what they want you to read as opposed mm -hmm. to something else. I mean, it, the level of manipulation of, of public knowledge and scientific research was astounding, just astounding. I think, I mean, that maybe I'm a cynic because that to me, you know, I was like, I'm, I wasn't as um, necessarily surprised by it's absolutely unethical and egregious and horrible. I, but I was like, okay, you know, that's not, I could see how that would be their, their strategy and how it would be very effective. To me, the thing that stuck out was that, and correct me if I'm wrong on my understanding of this, but they didn't do any they didn't really test over the past 40 years, like the, whether or not, um, this, their, their products, their formulated products could be carcinogenic. Well, you know, maybe that's the best answer. You're right. I mean, they, they didn't, uh, they didn't do these tests. Like they I mean, just didn't do the tests. Like they, I can't wrap my head around that. They, well, <laughs> no one was requiring them to do the tests. You know, no one was. And, in by in 2016, the EPA said in a document that they were actually going to start doing that. Now they were going to work with the National Toxicology Program for the U.S. and they were going to pursue some testing of formulated glyphosate products to really try to understand. You know the it, you know does it cause oxidative stress? You know, are is there a link to cancer? And you can see that Monsanto. And CropLife, the lobbying group that Monsanto, you know, pays, contributes to and helps fund, they just went crazy. And they said to the EPA, basically, how dare you? You know, <laughs> we do not want you to do that, that testing. Don't do that testing. And, and so that is to your point, not only did they not do testing of form, their formulated products to, you know, determine if it could, they could cause cancer. But they um, suspected it could. Or suspect, yeah. They tried to keep other people oh, um, yeah, yeah. from doing it. They tried to keep regulators from doing it. They didn't want that level of scrutiny around their product. Um, it, 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 yeah, I still, you know, I still really 
um, I don't, I've never really used this word, but gobsmacked comes, <laughs> comes to mind <laughs> when I read that. I was like, I just cannot imagine being like in any sort of like product development or management position and being like, nope, we're not going to look into this, even though there had been a lot of evidence over the years that it in fact, you know, they, they tried to actively discredit any, any science that showed that there, this could be carcinogenic. And and one of the judges in, in the case made that point to them. And yeah. said, look, you know, here here you've turned in information. We have this in a deposition that you spent roughly $17 million over maybe two years on this project to try to discredit people and create all this fake propaganda. You could have spent that $17 million doing more research mm-hmm. into the safety of your product, but yet you chose to spend that money trying to smear and discredit people who were doing research. Mm-hmm. You know, what is that about? So. It's just, a, that's just, that's like a smoking gun to me. And then did I read this correctly again? Um, you know, they, Monsanto's big, they had this one really big um, study, this agricultural health survey um, that, you know, did, it was more of like a longitudinal study on the effects of glyphosate on farmers, right? Over, over decades. Um, did I get that summary correct? Sort of. Um, it's, <laughs> Correct me, yeah. Help me. <laughs> so it's not a study by Monsanto. The agricultural health study is is actually not one study. It's actually a, an umbrella, so to speak, okay. um, where are and it's put together by the EPA and you know a, a lot of different the National Cancer Institute and um, National Institute of Environmental Health Sciences. It's our our government essentially saying, hey. We know pesticides that are used on farms are dangerous or, you know, they're toxic. They're designed to kill things, right? Weeds and bugs and that sort of thing. We want to know what they're doing to people. And so this is from 19, you know, 93 basically is when it started. And the idea was to look at farmers, you know, in North Carolina and Iowa and look at their spouses and their families and see how they were being impacted by all these different types of pesticides that they use. And it's many different researchers and they do many studies and, you know, over, over the course of all of this time, um, many different things have come out. And one of the things that they looked at, of course, was glyphosate and non-Hodgkin lymphoma. And so there have been kind of a couple of updates uh, in the research as part of the agricultural health study. And there was one paper that came out, they referred to it as Andriotti 2018, and it said there was no association between glyphosate use and non-Hodgkin lymphoma. And Monsanto has sort of really hung on to that and said, see, you know, here's this study that says there's no association. And so that's the end of the discussion. And then people on the other side have said, well, but here's, you know, 30 other studies that have found an association. So not to mention there were serious flaws in the way that study was. And there are a number yeah. of, yes, critics uh, of the, of the mechanisms of that study. It was largely, there was a lot loss of follow-up, you know, it was surveys that farmers would fill out about, you know, their use and their health and they weren't able to track people over time. And so uh, there was great debate over whether or not that was a very valid study or not. And that's like the public health, um, my public health background nerd interest in that, <laughs> you know, like evaluating the kind of the, really hanging on the what the words of the how these these experts um who gave testimony 
discredited um, that study. But the one thing that you you write, while the AHS researchers concluded there was no overall association between glyphosate and non-Hodgkin lymphoma, the data did in fact show a significant association with NHL subtype called mycosis T-cell lymphoma. And that's the same type of cancer that was killing Lee. So I don't, I, I was like, did I read that right? Because that was their main, you know, body of evidence that they, that Monsanto pointed to. Well, there, you know, the study, the science is so nuanced. There's so much that you have to really dig down into. And it, you know, each side tore apart the other side's science. Um, this AHS study in particular was not a very strong, um, you know, cane for Monsanto to stand on. Uh, and obviously the jurors didn't, didn't find it to be worthy um, of their, you know, worthy enough, I guess, to change their verdict. So, you know, yeah, there were a lot of problems with it. Um, they they didn't find a direct NHL, but they did find connections to, you know, other type of cancers. So, right. Like um, the main type of cancer that was. But, <laughs> but as in, you know, all, I guess what I've learned is, a lot of the scientific research that comes out, very rarely do you see um, a conclusion that says, all right, we've solved it. We've cracked the nut. Here's the end all be all. We now know the answer. Right. What you see is, you know, we think more research should be done. This is what we've seen. This is what, you know, the associations that we've made, but more research is needed. Right. It's sort of an evolving learning um, process, I think. I mean, you can still find scientists and, you know, physicians today remarkably that, you know, don't think that tobacco causes cancer or that, you know, there's a link between sugar and obesity. There's, there's, I mean, it's really, or that climate change, you know, you've, you have scientists that say climate change isn't real. So, I mean, I think that to your point, there, there is always a, a naysayer. You can always find someone to support your argument. It is really like the body of evidence, the collective it's the weight of evidence. And this is what this international agency for research on cancer, IRC, this is what they tried to do was do a weight of evidence. You know, what does this tell us? Uh, it's, we, we're not saying for sure. It's not the be all end all of all time, but you know, it looks to us, the weight of evidence indicates this is a probable human carcinogen. And it's yeah. worth noting that one of the scientists on that team worked at the EPA. He was an EPA scientist. So, um, you know, these weren't some quack, uh, people they brought in. They were leaders from around the world, from the EPA and the uh, National Cancer Institute and, and other academic uh, um, institutions that came to this conclusion. So where are we today? The, the, the multiple cases are winding their ways through the courts. You mentioned that this is also you know, happening abroad. Have there been other um, regulatory agencies abroad that have kind of come out and said, you know, we've seen enough, we want to ban these products or significantly reduce um, you know, how widespread they are? Well, Thailand, uh, I wrote about this for The Guardian. Thailand said that it was going to ban glyphosate along with um, some other pesticides that, you know, that the science shows are particularly dangerous. And Monsanto, Bayer, uh, CropLife, you know, put the screws on uh, our U.S. government to in turn put the screws on Thailand and to convince them or pressure them not to ban glyphosate. And so Thailand backed away from that. And now Mexico similarly is saying that they want glyphosate banned um, 
by 2024. They want it completely out. Uh, and they cite, you know, the, the health of their people. Um, and they, they desire to have a precautionary principle and to not, you know, endanger their people with this chemical. And again, we have internal documents. I've written about this for The Guardian that show the companies working very, very hard, bear and crop life, to get the U.S. government to convince Mexico to back away from that plan. So we'll see what happens. Wow. Um, I mean, is it, this is cynical, but like, is it just too late? Is the cat out of the bag? Like it's just too widespread and too relied upon at this point, in your opinion? Well, it's definitely too widespread, I guess. I, I don't think, you know, it serves anybody to say, well, you know, uh, we're already have such a poisoned environment that let's just keep on poisoning. I mean, but that's kind of what I, I think that's like, I feel like that's kind of the mentality of a lot of uh, key players in this space almost. I mean, that you do see people backing away from, like you just, like you said, from trying to regulate it further. Right. Well, it could, you know, that I suppose is, is a valid thought. And, you know, I do think that there are people, I, I think, that we all have a different urgency um, around, you know, things that are relevant or important to our own life or our own perspective. Um, And, you know, for my father, for instance, you know, he didn't care much about pesticides, but he was very concerned about, you know, climate change and, Mm -hmm. and worked diligently as an activist on that. Now cancer killed him. uh, And uh, a few months ago, and I'm, I'm pretty convinced it was, you know, this massive exposure that he had to a particular pesticide, not glyphosate. Um, yeah. But who knows? But, uh, you know, we all, we can't all fix all the problems in the world. And we just have to do our best to be educated and, and work to, you know, make a healthier future for our kids, I think. But yeah. certainly it's, it's not, the answer is not to say, you know, Let's just keep. Yeah, yeah. Dead in the poison. No, I I just, I think, you know, it's just so widespread. It seems almost, you know, like a losing battle, even if we kind of shut down the production today. I mean, isn't it like in the, don't you write about this in in Whitewash, how it's like even in the, in the air or in the rain, it's in like substantial, you know, there's a lot of evidence to show that it's in like a big part of the the population's like blood bloodstreams. Yes. yes, it's found it, this particular chemical glyphosate is so ubiquitous in our environment. The US Geological Survey um, scientists have found it in rainfall samples and air samples in waterways. It's found in water, food, found in human urine. Um, yes, but so are many other chemicals. You know, I mean, this is not a, a one company, one chemical story. This is a much broader story about we have let, you know, these giant corporations and their profit motivations, um, you know, become a priority and public health is taking a back seat. And you're seeing all of these cancers, 40% of men and women is expected to get cancer in their lifetimes in the U.S., wow. rising rates of cancer in children for some types of cancer, neurodevelopmental problems declining, uh, you know, fertility, increasing rates of infertility, drops in testosterone levels, reproductive problems. I mean, all of these, these things, um, that affect our health and our well-being and affect the future for our kids. And, you know, we need to take back, I guess, 
our health and, and our lives. And I don't know how we do that best, I guess, but I think education, information, and shining a light, like we, I try to do in my books is, you know, one step anyway. Absolutely. Um, I mean, it really speaks to the fact that the, you know, the press, the free press is truly the, the fourth estate in, in this country, um, which I, you know, I really respect and appreciate um, all of your work that has gone into this and at, you know, some, some personal cost I, I, to you. I mean, I, my understanding is that Monsanto has targeted you personally over your work on this. Well, they definitely did. And those are other documents that, um, that came out uh that you know we've seen um yeah and how they had a spreadsheet to try to you know tear down my book and uh and they paid front groups that you know wrote ne- negative articles about me and oh there's other other things that have come out that were written they had some sort of search engine optimization so that if you googled my name and glyphosate you'd get you know some propaganda they wanted you to read and it's truly they've, unbelievable. Yeah, they've spent a lot of energy trying to discredit and harass and intimidate me. Um, well, it means that you're probably definitely onto something. Okay, so we're going to leave it there. But um, you know, just one last question: what What is next for you? Is this you know? Are you do you need to take a take a beat, or do you think that this story there's more to the story that will continue to unfold? Well, clearly there's going to be more because there's still litigation and they still are trying to figure out, you know, what to do about, about, are they going to put a warning label finally on this? Are they not? I mean, there's still more of this story. I'm uh, promising everyone I'm never going to write another book. I think about Monsanto or Glenn. Didn't you say that about after whitewash? I don't know. (laughs) Um, But uh, no, I'm moving on. Um, to look at some other other pesticide issues, I think. But uh, yeah, I do hope people will read this book, though, just if for no other reason to, you know, as a testament to Lee Johnson and sort of the struggle and the torment that he's been through and, uh, you know, what a remarkable individual he he is and how he's touched my heart. And I think he'll touch other people's hearts. Mm Okay, we're going to have to leave it there for today. I want to thank our sponsors. Our show intern is Amber Chong. G. Paul is our engineer. And music is by Tim Archer. All episodes of Eating Matters are available on the HRN website or as a podcast wherever they're found. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe. I'm Jenna Liute, and thank you for listening. Eating Matters is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network food radio supported by you for our freshest content and to learn more about our 10 year anniversary celebration happening all year long subscribe to our newsletter enter your email at the bottom of our website heritageradionetwork.org connect with us on instagram and twitter at heritage underscore radio you can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right-hand side of our homepage. Thanks for listening.